You're listening to episode 259 of the Master Your Mind, Business, and Life podcast. We're getting a double dip of storytelling magic with today's guest. Actress Brienne Davis joined us on our Awaken Your Soul Sunday series back in April, where she shared her story of being a recovering love and sex addict. After I heard Brienne's story, I knew I needed to follow it up with a conversation, and I am so happy that she accepted my invite. Whether lighting up the big screen or calling the shots behind the scene, actor, director, producer, and writer Brianne Davis is one of the most electric talents to storm Hollywood by force. Originally from Atlanta, Brianne moved to Los Angeles to pursue her acting career. Her first lead role came in 2005 with the blockbuster hit Jarhead, opposite of Jake Gyllenhaal, and her credits include reoccurring roles on Hulu's Casual, TNT's Murder in the First, HBO's True Blood, as well as FX's Nip Tuck, NCIS Los Angeles, CBS's CSI in Miami, ABC's Desperate Housewives, HBO's True Blood, and she most recently wrapped up two seasons as a regular in History Channel 6, as well as a role in the current season of Netflix's Lucifer. Seriously, one of my favorite characters in Lucifer. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Today, we are discussing everything from what it means to be a love and sex addict to Brianne's big aha moment to when she was able to identify with being an addict, her journey within recovery, and we're even going into a little bit of motherhood. Don't forget that we've got some podcast merch. That's right. You can now rep your favorite podcast with our signature t-shirts, long sleeve tees, tanks, hoodies, stickers, and mugs. We also have a spiritual section on the website as well. All you have to do is go to mindbizlife.com, click on the shop section, and shop till you drop. Remember that when you get your order, I want to see what you got. So DM me your photos or tag me in them. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at MindBizLife. Also, I have had a lot of questions as to when Awaken Your Soul Sunday is coming back from its summer hiatus, and I'm happy to say that August is the month. I will share more on this next week. But for now, it is time to meet Brienne. You know what to do. Tune in, turn it up, let's go. with everyday world shifters, truth seekers, and rule breakers. Here's your host, Lauren Smith. Hey, Brienne. Welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Me too. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. I know. I'm sure a good portion of our audience heard your episode on our Sunday series, Awaken Your Soul Sunday. And I know for a fact that they've got more questions and quite frankly, I do too. So before I hit you with all of my many questions, let's just start here. How exactly did you get into acting? Like, did you know this was what you wanted to do from a young age or what what really progressed this? No, I actually had no clue. I was one of those young kids that always had a huge imagination and to escape my reality. Mm-hmm. I would go into fantasy in my head and act out scenes and b- imagine I lived somewhere else, which I'm sure a lot of kids do. But I grew up in a really tumultuous family that didn't, you know, I never saw my parents like be loving to each other. There was a lot of fighting, fighting over finances, you know, never slept in the same bed. So I just never 
knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew I didn't want to be where I was, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, and and, and I really sh- didn't want that, like what you were seeing. Oh, yeah. I did not want marriage and I did not want children. And I just knew that reality was already so hard at a young age. And I had ADHD and dyslexia. So school wasn't easy for me at all. So I couldn't escape in school and I couldn't escape at home. So I escaped into my imagination and I was a latchkey kid. So I'd watch movies and TV a lot. So I still didn't know what I wanted to do and what happened on top of all of that stuff and trauma, I was very shy and very sensitive individual. I already knew like I could feel at a young age, I was just different than other people Mm. and going through like middle school and developing and all that. I had, you have to take a class. You either, I had to take volleyball or drama class. (laughs) I was like, Well, I tried volleyball camp when I was younger and I bruised so easily that (laughs) I was like, I don't want to play volleyball. (laughs) Like the ball hits your hands and I would bruise. So I'm like, I'll just take drama class. And I had so much anxiety at drama class, you know, learning the lines, being on stage in front of people. I had stage fright. But as soon as the play went up, I just like became another person. Wow. And so what happened was at that time, I grew into myself also. So I started like modeling locally and doing commercials. And then what happened was Remember the Titans came to town, the movie Remember the Titans. And I auditioned for one of the rival cheerleader parts through my local agency. And it was a two line part and I got it. And I was like, (laughs) oh my God, I've made it. I'm big now. (laughs) Yes, this is it. And I worked on that movie for three and a half weeks, almost a month. And it shot from 4 a.m. to uh, yeah, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. Wow. So it was night shoots. And if you're an actor or want to know, night shoots are so difficult. They're exhausting. But I loved it. I loved that all these people were coming together and creating this film and get getting to be somebody else and doing my lines and, you know, working with big stars and I just love, I loved craft service. You can go eat food. Like I loved every (laughs) aspect. I loved hair. I loved makeup. I loved everything. And I just knew then that this is what I want to do. Do you feel that part of that experience, your first experience doing it of, do you feel like maybe you were catered to in a bet and like seen in a way that maybe you weren't being seen by your peers or your parents too? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, when you're on set, and you're becoming a character are part of a crew, the cast, you're a part of a family, you're welcomed. Mm -hmm. Even if people don't get along, you're still a part of that family. And it's not as dramatic behind the scenes as it can be at your own home and school. So I just felt like for the first place and time in my life that I had somewhere, like I belonged, I was different from other people. Cause if you go to Hollywood or, you know, on movie sets, everybody's like has a crazy personality majority, you know, (laughs) like it's a bunch of misfits all coming together to create like a beautiful art magic. So yeah. Yeah. So I just felt, and it really opened me up out of my shell. I think playing other people allowed me to, to be more open and, and not so shy. 
Mm, and it got, it allowed you to live in that fantasy world that you, mm-hmm. you attached to. And, and you also could resonate with too, I think, because if you're, if you're a latchkey like that kid like that, and you are just watching movies and television, also they kind of become your family too, especially like these sitcoms, like you become attached. Like I remember just being so attached still am to like the fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Like <laughs> my kids like walk in and I'm like, you don't know anything about the fresh Prince. Like, please don't even, but it, it becomes part of your childhood then. And then it just becomes part of you in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I was a huge, but see, I picked when I was younger, I didn't pick something appropriate, like fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I picked <laughs> My parents, I picked like Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare, yeah. like I like inappropriate things for young ages where you're thinking romance and love looks like you meet for right. two days, sleep together, and then you someone's got to drink some poison or stab themselves at the end. Yeah. Like it was like the extremes. Yes. And it was definitely like, that's what real love looks like. You'll die for the other person. So I definitely didn't watch things age appropriate. Mm, You know, I wouldn't allow my son to watch, but you know, (laughs) made me who I am. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So I'm sure everybody's really wondering, okay, so you are in recovery from being a sex and love addict. Mm-hmm. What really sparked your aha moment with helping you identify that you were that you were an addict of this? Well, I think it came when I I hit my bottom when I was in my late 20s and I finally met a man that I respected and loved as much as I could love anybody, as much as I was capable of loving somebody. Mm. But here's the big kicker, like if we weren't together and he wasn't my boyfriend, I'd want to be his friend. And because I realized a lot of partners I picked earlier, I didn't even like as people. Like I would look at them and be like, you're rude to waiters or I don't even really like you. We don't have similar goals. So I was with somebody. So I thought, oh, it's my youth. You know, I was just bouncing from relationship to relationship, trying to find that soulmate, that partner, that person to fix me, complete me, blah, blah, that I do not believe in at all. I don't believe in soulmates. I believe that you are your own soulmate. And what happened, a mentor of mine passed suddenly of a heart attack. And I found myself two days later on location, shooting a movie across the country away from my live-in boyfriend. And I was like flirting with everybody and intriguing and intriguing is like flirting, but amplified where you act like you're available, but you're not, you take it to Mm. the next level. You give someone your number, you you get like all the signs that you want to date them and then you don't. So I was doing that more and more on the set. And then I, I, I realized, oh my God, I'm about to blow up my whole relationship again. Am I going to cheat again? And I had this moment, I, I like to call it the dark night of the soul, um, where I was sitting in my hotel room. It was like a holiday inn in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I remember looking at myself in the mirror going, oh my God, are you going to be like this the rest of your life? Are you going to be 80 years old, never connected to another human on this planet, always Mm -hmm. having one foot in and one foot out? Because I thought for the longest time that I just love, like I love falling in love. I'm such a loving person. But really what I was doing was going around looking and searching for people to fill me, friends, 
my partner, my family to fill me because I was so empty inside. I was so depleted of self-worth and self-love. So I called a girlfriend that was in therapy and she sent me to her therapist and her therapist, um, you know, told me I was a sex and love addict. And we went through the 40 self-diagnosed questions and I got a staggering number, which was outrageous. It was 38 out of 40. And I talk about this in my book. And it was just a mirror like, wow, you have this problem. And I walked into my first meeting that night. Oh, and I skipped a step. But when I told my live-in boyfriend, I'm a sex and love addict, I get home and he highlights all the meetings I didn't go to. Oh, wow. It was such a beautiful moment. And I went to a meeting that night and it was 30 people. This was like almost 12 years ago, 30 people sitting around completely different from me, like an A-list celebrity to a social worker, to an elementary school teacher, to a CEO. It was just every walk of life you can imagine. And they each said something that I've either felt, done, thought about doing. And I just, for the first time, I was like, oh, I'm not broken or alone. Mm. I just didn't get the tools how to have healthy relationships. And I'm addicted to people. People are like my bottle of alcohol. And it just, it allowed me to grieve for the younger self that didn't get the tools, but also then to step into my responsibility and adult up. And now it's time to take responsibility for the things I've done and moving forward in the future, never to do those things again. How amazing though, that your partner then sat there and did that because it would have been super easy for him to look at you and be like, either one, Brianne, you're crazy. You're not a sex and love addict or, or two, Brianne, you're crazy. I'm out. You know, totally. I got like, all right, bye. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine being with someone and them saying, you know, I was about to cheat on you or I'm flirting and intriguing. Mm. I didn't give those details, but I mean, if someone comes in and says, I'm a sex and love act, you know, it has to do with sex and love and other people, you know, like it's, right. it's pretty like, uh, blatantly yeah, obvious. Going on? Yeah. But here's the thing, my God, my higher power universe or whatever you want to call it, you know, put me with a partner that understood 12 steps. He already had like 20 years in AA recovery. So when I said that to him, he knew it wasn't about him. Ooh. He knew it wasn't that he could fix me because he's dealt with it in the past and his disease. And, you know, here's the thing. I'm still with that man today. We've been together for 16 years. That's beautiful. We are married. Yeah. And it's just like to have someone stand next to you and support you and also believe in you, but he wasn't allowed to fix me. We had very strict boundaries. We didn't have sex, which I barely talk about this, but we didn't have sex for the first year of my recovery. Yeah. What, what goes into recovery? (laughs) What are like the steps of this? Because I'm sure I can kind of picture it in my head of like the Mm -hmm. meetings and very like AA like, or therapy, like where you're just understanding self taking ownership, but what, what does it really involve past that? 
Well, it's complicated. I wish it was as easy as AA or NA, you know, where it's you quit doing it, right? Mm. It's black and white. You quit right, drugs and stop alcohol. Loving, like, and, right. And, right. And sex is like a normal part of, of our being. So yeah. How do you stop those? <laughs> yeah. It's such a gray disease. And I think that's what people don't understand about this addiction. They don't, they just think it's a guy getting caught cheating on his wife than saying he's a sex addict. Mm. Like that's yeah. what people think when they say, and I've told people before, you know, I'm a sex recovering sex and love addict and it's the, the reactions are so funny. It's like, Ooh, I wish I would have met you then. And it's like, gross. Like, oh, no, yeah, it is gross is. to use people to fill you. Yeah. That's what it is. So I always like to explain like the recovery of sex and love addiction is you take away all those things you use. So say here's not my disease, but like if you DM people on Instagram, if you have a problem getting likes, they give you a high, you get obsessed with it. You go back to that unavailable partner that or bad relationship over and over again. You pe- keep picking the same patterns of relationships over and over again. You know, you sleep with people when you don't want to. You have one night stands. You swipe left and r- swipe right constantly on dating apps, porn addiction, masturbation when you have feelings and don't want to feel, you know, having multiple partners overlap each other. It's so many different variables of sex, but it's all relationships, not Mm. just partnerships. So that's for me, like I realized I didn't show up for my friends and I picked friends that didn't show up for me or family members where there's emotional enmeshment, where there's no boundaries between a parent and a child, things like that. So it's very, very complicated disease. And then on the other side of it, there's sexual anorexia where you stop acting out sexually because you don't want to be intimate with anybody. Mm. But at the core of all these behaviors is this lack of self-love, fear of abandonment, fear of intimacy, fear of not being worthy because we have a hard time attaching intimacy and love. So if I loved you, I didn't want to have sex with you because it's too intimate. It's too much for me. I, I, it, it's almost painful. Mm. And then on the other side, if I don't love you, I can have sex with you. So it's this just, it's just the most complex addiction. And they say, you know, every other addiction is on top of sex and love addiction because it's that core, core beliefs that you get from your family. So, you know, people start, if they have a bad family, they start drinking or using drugs or all those gambling, all those things on top of it. So they call it the PhD of all the addictions where, yeah, so it's underneath, you know, if someone drinks, it's because they are in a bad relationship and they keep going back to it because they feel like they deserve it. So then they keep drinking to like make it okay. It's just, it's such a thing. And getting into recovery, here's the thing. It's different for every single person. My bottom lines would be different than your bottom lines if you were in the Mm. program. So for me, I say my bottom lines look like this at the beginning. It's no having any guy friends. So I got rid of all my guy friends because I realized I used them to give me a attention, no talking, texting, or emailing any men. And what this looked like is I would go to a restaurant and I could not look at the waiter. I would look down at the menu the entire time because I was giving off that sexual energy, that flirtation, like 
I was raping other people. Like I'm going to flirt with you and you reciprocate. So then it makes me feel important. Wow. So I, I kept flirting and I didn't even mean to, and it was so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It was just this pattern of behavior that I learned to not be inside myself completely. So it's cutting off all those things, not being cheating outside of a relationship, not flirting, not intriguing, not, I, it's literally, you get rid of everything, get rid of every pattern, everything you've done and you bring it back in a healthy way. So you have to go through a period of abstinence and they call that withdrawal. And my withdrawal was nine months of pure hell. Like I cried every day for nine months. Yeah. How did, how did you work through that? Like, I, I mean, crying, but were you journaling? Like, oh, I, I mean, girl. I'm sure like some people were like <laughs> eating, like, did you find yourself like, oh, you- I ate, believe me. Yeah. I definitely whack-a-mole to other diseases and, yeah. you know, not other big ones, but eating, you know, when you're having a bad day and you're like, I want this ice cream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, we all have done that, but yeah, I cried for nine months. I did intense therapy for eight years. I went twice a week. I did three meetings a week for Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I journaled. I did my 12 steps with my sponsor. It took me nine years to do my all my 12 steps. It took me two and a half years to do my fourth and fifth step. And fourth and fifth step is where you write all your resentments down. You know, people, I had 176 people on my resentment Holy list. Holy shoot. I know. I was like the walker. I walked around with so much resentment. I was like drowning in them. Yeah. But you know, I kind of feel like if we were to all be honest, even if it comes down to the smallest little piece of resentment, right? Because like mm. I, some of my friends sometimes would be like, oh, I can't stand so-and-so. They did this to me in first grade. And I'm like, wow, we're still holding on to that, you know? But but that's what I did. I yeah. got my mom to mail me all my yearbooks. And I went through, I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm really going to do these 12 steps, like I, because if you do them right the first time, you don't have to do them again. And I'm like all a type A, like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I can always go back and act out. That's something I can do with my eyes closed, but let's do this. Like I'm already in so much pain. I might as well just keep walking through it. Yes. Um, And I went through my yearbooks and anybody I had a hit on didn't even know what it was. I would write their name down. And when I was doing it, you know, you write what happened in the situation. And then on the other side, you write what your part is because we always have a part. We mm. amplify it. We we get into the drama. We gossip. We are envious or jealous. Like we have these character defects. And after going through 176 people, and I'm talking about like that woman at the bank that right. cut, cut line <laughs> yeah. and then got snappy with me. Like I had the that woman yeah. at the bank, my old neighbor. Like I yeah. didn't even know the names, the girl right. in the yellow car. It was yeah. insane. But- and I remember reading it with my sponsor and I got to, I think I got to like 101 or something like that. And I threw my page, like my notebook against the wall. And I was like, I'm just repeating myself. Why do I have to say this? And she's like, get over it. Like adult up, pick up your paper and read. And the point of looking at that is seeing where you have these patterns that you act out over and over again with all these people. Mm. Did you, did you see that that pattern was like the same? 
blinding your side. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's where I, I think by like 150, I was cracking up every time I was reading it. It was like, oh, this one again, envious of this actress that got this part. It was like, blah, blah. But here's the thing. When you get to that point and you then see your characteristics like jealousy, compare and despair, envy, um, self-righteous, narcissistic, egotistical, like all these things that run my life, I then can see when they act out in my life. So I had, Mm. you know, 22 major character defects. And I'm like, there's my perfectionism. There's my procrastination. There's my, you know, egotism, you know, all that stuff. Wow. So how do you, after you see it blatantly mm-hmm. in front of you, because you said like you start laughing by the time you get to 150. Yes. And to me, that is just um, like, that's an emotional shift too, because when you're reading number one, it's still like, oh, Sally from the hairdresser. Like you still have like that bit of resentment. And then like mm-hmm. you get to 150 and you're like, wow, I'm ridiculous. So yeah. So, <laughs> so how do you then like release from that point, the resentment and move forward? Well, that's the thing during the process, you usually see, you know, the childness, the things that you're holding on to that are eating you alive and making you do these horrible things to other people and use other people. And, and from those, you get that list of character defects. So then you move into, I don't allow my character defects to run my life. And every day you focus on okay, I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do this. And if I do those things, I make amends immediately. And then you have a list of people you have wronged. And I had a list (laughs) of people I have wronged. But a lot of my amends to people are living amends because it's not appropriate for me to reach out to an old boyfriend you know, and apologize. So I wrote a lot of letters. I sent them to my sponsor And I made living amends to never act out and hurt another person on this planet. Wow. I love that so much. And I love that you write it out because to me, especially, I know that writing is just so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes when, when you're writing those, those letters of amends or forgiveness or whatever it may be to just kind of like say your piece, you realize it's way more for you than it was for them. Like, Mm -hmm. especially when you get it all out, like it's this release on a deep level. It is. It's, I mean, it's very powerful in then even saying it out loud. There's a power in saying like, I did these things I'm not proud of, but this shame does not run me anymore. And I'm not going to do these things again. And then, you know, you move into the last three steps, whereas, you know, you make amends immediately when you are wrong, you promptly admitted it. You sought through prayer and meditation to have a higher contact with the universe. And the last one is be of service. And that's what I'm doing, you know, with the book, the podcast, talking to people like you, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. It is to be of service to the world. Mm, I love that. And that's what keeps me sober for 11 years, you know, now is that now I get to, you know, say this is who I used to be. This is what I did. And I don't carry this shame anymore. And it doesn't define me and it doesn't have to define you either. And you can get out of the cycle. So what does living an authentic life mean to you now that you are this far into recovery? I, I think the main thing is just always being honest and transparency 
and speaking my truth in a way that is not attacking someone else. You know, I still, my husband and I, we have disagreements, but we do it in a very constructive way. Mm -hmm. And we do it in a way where we're not damaging each other and not damaging our son. And I think that to me, living that authentic life and because it's getting transferred to my son, I'm stopping the cycle of addiction that has ran in my family for generations. You know, my great, great, great grandfather was an alcoholic and every generation when I looked down the line was either an alcoholic or transferred it to work, workaholism or overeating or, you know, on and on and on. And I just transferred it to sex and love addiction and I'm hoping, you know, God willing, my son has his own path, but I'm hoping my husband and I have done the work that we are not, we are not putting that on our son and he's going to have his own path. Mm -hmm. Motherhood in particular can just be a catalyst for growth. What lessons have you learned through parenting? I think the main thing I learned through parenting is that my son is his own person and part of me always remembered my mom being like, I gave birth to you and you're, you do what I say and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And there was a lot of emotional uh, enmeshment with my father where it's called emotional incest. Um, and it's where a parent m- makes their child fill them in a sense of, you know, if they're having a bad day, you need to make them feel better. So I had a lot of moments where it's like, give me a hug. I've had a bad day. And as a child, the energy should not go from the child to the parent. It should be going the parent to the child. So I have, we have made a conscious effort. Not if, you know, if I'm mommy's having a bad day, my son does not need to come and hug me and make mommy feel better. It is not his job to make me feel better. But it's also, I have boundaries with my son. If I'm working, if I'm, you know, doing some self-care for me, I'm allowed to say, I'm actually, mom's having alone time. I will be with you in 15 minutes. And it's just having clear boundaries and and allowing my son to have his feelings. So many parents, especially for me, I'm just talking for me, don't allow kids to have a bad day to cry, mm-hmm. to have a tenter tantrum. I mean, how many times have you wanted to have a tenter tantrum? Oh, like, I mean, all the time, all like, the time, <laughs> right? And sometimes you just need to scream or like kick and because that needs to come out of our bodies. And I wasn't allowed to do that as a kid. So what I did is I pushed down all these emotions I had and upset and disappointment and sadness that I wasn't allowed to feel. And then it turned into addiction because those those emotions have to go somewhere. They're stuck in your body. And when they're stuck, that's where disease, addiction, mental depression, all that comes in. And I allow my son to have his feelings. If he's crying, I'm like, okay, do you know why you're crying? And he's like, no, he's only three. And I'm like, it's okay. You cry when you need a hug or when you're done, you'd let me know. And I just allow him to have his feelings. I love that. And that's such an important lesson that I hadn't consciously thought of, of, you know, asking your kids to give you a hug when you've had a bad day. My kids, one thing that I'm, my, my girls are 11 and seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I do that same boundary of I'm working. Like they, they really respect the space. There may be a time or two where they peek their head in while I'm podcasting or like, can I have this snack? You know, yeah. that, like that. Like <laughs> they have those impulses. Yeah. They can't help it. Yeah. Like for the most part, like they're, they're really good. And people have asked me, I'm like, that's just really the, the standard that we've set. They know this is important to me. So they understand that. But I, 
Um, I show my emotions and for a while, one of someone I know, she was like, you know, you really shouldn't cry in front of your kids. And I was like, no, I like, I cry all the time, but they know that that's my emotional response yeah. to like, I'm having a bad day. I'm stressed. And I try to voice it to them. Like I got, they got in the car the other day and I just looked at them and I was like, before I ask you about your day, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys, I had a really stressful day today. So I just can't absorb a lot. And I was like, so when we get home, give me 15 minutes and then I'll hear all about your days. They're like, okay, cool. But that's what I do too, to a three-year-old. And it's so important. That is such a beautiful thing to say because when you take responsibility for, I, and I, and I do this a lot, I go with something I'm frustrated and my son did it the other day. And he's like, my husband's like, what are you doing? He's like, mommy. And he, and he goes, oh, was she frustrated? He goes, yes, frustrated. And then when I'm crying, he's he's tried to give me a hug. And I've been like, no, no, baby. Mommy's allowed to cry. I'm allowed to be upset. I'm upset right now. And I need to feel this. You do not have to hug me. And it's like, I wish that was modeled or I wish they taught it in school. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I just like to have that, that it's okay it's okay to have these feelings and it's okay to say what you need in that moment. Like, you know, actually I could use a hug, you know, like sometimes like you just need that serotonin boost in your brain from like, Mm -hmm. you know, someone else. And other times like me, I'm that person. I'm like, no, please don't touch me. Like I just, (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, I'm I'm the opposite. I'm like, no, please, please don't touch me. Please. I just need my personal space. Please walk away. No, but I think the saying like feelings are meant to be felt Mm, and just saying that to my son at three years old, feelings are meant to be felt and you'll, and you'll get through them and they'll go, they'll go, they'll pass. So it's because as an addict, I always felt like I was drowning in my feelings and that they would last forever. Mm. And that, that to me is just such an important lesson. And I want to carry that to my son. I think that's a beautiful lesson. And and you're not teaching him to repress. And when we Mm -hmm. repress, then we get to these, you know, points of being an adult where we have traumas that we're working through that we could have really kind of avoided if they were dealt with in the right way as kids, or we had really healthy childhoods with great boundaries, like we're setting with our kids. Yay. (laughs) We do have, I think actually a few of our questions that the audience had sent in were already answered through our conversation, but there was one that says, uh, do you take on roles that involve romance or sex scenes? If so, how do you mentally prepare for that in recovery or does it not trigger anything emotionally because it's acting? Well, I think in the past I was triggered and I'd get, you know, doing romance scenes and I would get a little triggered and like fantasize and stuff like that. But I think after 11 years of recovery now, I'm very diligent when I go to work. It is work. I am a worker among workers and nothing is, it's all fantasy. So even when I go on, on set and do a love scene, I don't, my head doesn't go into the place of like, this is real. And plus, just so you know, 
and I talk about this in the book a lot, is love scenes are the least romantic situation you can <laughs> okay. imagine. I could there's, imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a camera really close to you. You have a conversation, and I go through this whole thing in, in my book. You go through a conversation that's like, okay, you can touch here and here on my body, but you can't touch my private part, but you can touch the side of my boob, but not, you can yeah. touch my butt. Like, And then the other actor says his stuff, and then you block it. It's like a, it's like a, a dance sequence. So you mm-hmm. block it with the director and there's like seven other people watching while you're blocking this love scene on top of each other close it's so uncomfortable and then on the day there's probably like 30 people standing around eating pizza because it's you know their snack right the grips (laughs) waiting for you to stop like stop acting like you're dry humping you know with a sheet a sheet in between you and then sometimes if you're really naked like he has on a sock yeah. It's just the most uncomfortable situation you can imagine. <laughs> like you want it over and you know you kiss but you can't use tongue. So I really talk about it and I'm just, you know, it's mostly the fantasy building up to the shoot of the love scene that I now, you know, have like where I know I'm just acting. Yeah. Um but and now I'm so I'm at such an age I'm not getting asked to do those parts anymore, which I kind of love. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> okay, we're past this now. We're past. We're past that, that ingenue, <laughs> yeah. like overly sexualized characters. Yeah. <laughs> Another question was, um, out of all of the roles that you've played, which has been your favorite? Oh my gosh, I have a couple favorite, but one of the favorites I just did was on Lucifer, Detective Dancer. Uh, yeah, saw you on that. Love. Oh my god, <laughs> she was the best character ever. She was like four or five different characters in one, and the director <laughs> was a female director, and she just really let me play and gave me so many different directions. So I didn't know what was going to be on the screen. But the bumming part was they were going to have us back on episodes or make um the diablo show like its own show but it's not happening oh no it's a bit of a bummer but i love synchronicity abby the movie synchronicity i love six playing lena graves she was such a beautiful character so i have my favorites and i really like i just did this movie for a lifetime that my husband directed it they changed the title. It's called Secret Lives of a Celebrity Surrogate. And I get to play this like crazy A-list celebrity that loses her mind. So that was a really fun part too. Ooh, I bet that is fun. How, what is it like? Um, oh wait, let me scroll down. I missed that one. What is it like being in recovery and sharing your story? Are you still feeling extremely vulnerable? Um, I was, when I first came out with the HuffPost article, I thought the world was going to end when it came out like that morning. I was like, what did I do? Did I ruin my career? No one's going to hire me again. Cause they think I'm like a sex crazed woman or something yeah, like just out here, like, you yeah, know, doing all the like, porn. Yeah. <laughs> but then two hours later, nothing happened. Like the world did not stop. It was such like a humbling moment for me where I'm like, ha ha God, very funny. Like, (laughs) But now I, I'm such a grateful sex and love addict in recovery. I, I will speak about it to anyone. I will share my experience because it's such a hush, hush disease. And Mm. especially a lot of women don't talk about being a love and a sex addict. A lot of men are shamed to be love addicts. And I have a lot of male fellows and 
I mean, they say it's 6 million, um, 6% of the United States are sex and love addicts. So that's, I think it's like 9 million or something people. And that 38% of them are women. And that statistic was seven years ago. And I'm just telling you from my experience being in the rooms for so long and sponsoring, the number is inflated. It's huge. Now we have 19 year olds, 20 year olds coming in, having trouble with intimacy, having trouble connecting, especially with social media. It's so disconnecting. It's so always looking for the bigger, better, shinier disease of more. So I'm very proud to speak out now. I want to help someone. And every day lately, especially with the book coming out that I get six to 10 emails, DMs a day saying how much I've helped somebody understand that they're not alone or their parents did that or their sister or their brother. So it's the best thing I've ever done. Honestly. I I love that you're, you're really leaning into helping people master their lives through your own experience, because it would have been so easy for you to just, and I'm not saying easy as like this journey has been easy, (laughs) but easy in the way that you didn't have to come forward. You didn't have to write a book. You didn't have to do any of that. And I didn't want to do any of that. Just so you know, this (laughs) is not, yeah. What made you do it then? If you didn't want to, what, what made you build up to this? Okay. So it's really crazy. It was like, um, it was like all these factors came in at one time. I got my 10 year chip in the program. I got, you know, this gold chip that says 10 years, a decade. Uh, and I just, I was speaking at a meeting and the room was packed with 85 people, newcomers. It was a newcomer meeting and just this overwhelming sense of, oh, this is my purpose to give back even more. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, my friend, Jana Kramer, you know, has gone yeah. through her own uh, addiction with love and her marriage. And I'm helping her on, you know, really trying to get through the marriage, you know, make it work, all that. And we started writing a show together and we started talking about pitching it around town But what was happening, it was getting changed into a different story than what we wanted to tell. And then at the same time, my husband, who's also our producing partner, he was like, you know what? You need to write your own story. There's this novel class for 90 days. I think you should write it. And I was like, I'm a creator. I'm not an actual writer. Like, what are you talking about? I have ADHD. I'm dyslexic. I'm an actress, like leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't going to add author to my resume. Oh, I was like, what in God's name? I flunked English class. Like, what are you talking about? I can't even spell. I have to look up every word known to man. (laughs) But he kept mentioning it. He kept mentioning it. He mentioned it, I think, six times. And finally, I looked at him like, Okay, fine. And he said, listen, you can take the class. No one can know. I'll the only person that know. It's not that much money. So if you do like two of the classes, you just stop taking it. And I was like, okay, leave me alone. And I took the class and I wrote the first draft of the book in 45 days. Whoa. It wasn't even, it was crazy. And I read the book now and I'm like, ooh, this is actually good. <laughs> well, I yeah, said, that's a bestseller. It's definitely <laughs> good. <laughs> I know, but my husband's like, I said, I wrote this. And he's like, yeah, you wrote this. And I was like, huh. huh. Like, so I really think it was this collision of I'm ready to step into it. More younger people were coming in and I was helping them writing the book. I didn't write the book. My God, someone else wrote the book and it just funneled through me, you know? So it was like, 
this perfect storm. And then the world shut down with the pandemic. And I saw so many people suffering and in depression and alone and in bad relationships and abusive relationships coming in. And it was just like, we need to even be bigger. And that's when we started the podcast. And it was just like this momentum of being of service. My husband and I have been leaning into. I love it so much. And I know after this conversation, our audience is just going to want more Brienne in their oh. life. <laughs> so tell them where they can go to connect with you further and to grab your book. Yeah. So you can totally DM me if any of this resonates. I answer all my DMs on Instagram at the Brianne Davis or TikTok the dot Brianne Davis. My book, you can go to secretlifenovel.com. You know, Secret Life Podcast is our podcast. And the novel now, you know, has the Audible, has signed copies, has all the links where you can get, you know, all the books. We're worldwide now, which is awesome. Yeah, we took, we're exclusive with Amazon for the first three months. And then we just took it worldwide. And I'm just really proud of when I help someone. That's my whole point. I'm not doing this for me. Like I said, I never wanted to come out. I was living in great life, but this was bigger than me. And now I'm, I love it. It's honestly the best thing. It's better than getting a a part on a movie. (laughs) Oh, that's so awesome. I love that you're living your truth. And I could seriously, I feel like I could talk to you all day. You're so much fun, but I really honor your vulnerability and the work that you're doing. You're on an important mission and you are rocking it. So thank Thank you, you, Brienne, for joining me today. Thanks for having, it was so fun. I love and honor the vulnerability that Brienne shares. I just scored a copy of her book and I can't wait to dive in. Be sure to grab a copy too. I've linked Brienne's website and social channels on this week's episode notes found on mindbizlife.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and be sure to give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you tune in and turn it up. I'll see you back here on Friday for another episode of Fuel Your Life Friday. But until then, remember, every level of life is an opportunity to grow. Be well, my friend.